Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I am Randall Carlisle, and my co-host, Rachel Santizo, is under the weather. So, Rachel, if you are watching, we hope you get better soon. This is one of the most watched and listened to podcasts uh, dealing with addiction and recovery, and the topics become somewhat raw, I, but I guess I guess the whole story of addiction is somewhat raw. Our guest today, by the way, uh, this is our 145th podcast, wow. so you you are the 145th guest. Do you feel special? <laughs> very, very special. <laughs> is Christian Cronin, uh, and Rachel actually arranged for Christian to come, and so typical of Rachel, she lines you up, and then she doesn't show up. What, yeah. what can I say? Uh, and Christian has quite a story, and what, what we hope by, we're not really trying to be salacious by talking about how bad things might have been when you're in your addiction or anything. But but the point of it is, okay, you, you have a, a, a really fairly negative past and, and you've gotten through that and you're succeeding. And our hope is that this provides hope to uh, people watching or listening. If you're in addiction or if you have a loved one who is, that, that it provides hope for something, you know, you can look forward to in the future. So uh, I'm, I'm, sometimes we start with the good, the bad, and the ugly, or uh, where, would you like to start with the, where would you like to start? Um, wherever, you know, like uh, I can start my, from youth or from adulthood well, or what, what we, talk, we talked a little earlier and you actually are a late bloomer addict. Right. Correct. Explain that. <laughs> so I lived uh, my adult life. I started off as the very stereotypical, you know, like married house, two kids, a car. Um, and then I didn't start really using heavily until my early 30s. Wow. I mean, I, I'd say the majority of the people we have on here started like 13, 14, 15 yeah. And and you weren't. No, I mean, I smoked weed a little bit in high school. Um, didn't even start drinking alcohol till after I was almost of legal age. Wow. Um, kind of, uh, it goes back, like my father, my biological father was an alcoholic. So they kind of put that into you. It's genetic, it's genetics. I, right. Like I didn't want to drink because I thought that I was going to become this alcoholic. And then, you know, when I got in my late teens, I started drinking with friends and stuff, but never really had a problem with that until, uh, with any substance until, like I said, like about my early thirties. How, how did that transition after, uh, because you, you work in the industry now, and we'll get into that in a second, but everybody says your brain doesn't mature till you're 25. So you had a mature brain yeah. when you got into it. How'd you, how'd you get into it? Well, I got into it from, um, I would say, like like I said, I would probably drink like three or four times a year um, with friends at social events. And then after I got divorced, um, I was in my early 30s and I was I got married a, uh, six months after my six, six days after my 21st birthday. So I'm like, I'm going to relive my my childhood, my 20s. So I started going to the bars quite heavily. Um, and then I started doing a lot of coke with uh, with that scene. Um, started seeing a girl who was uh, using heroin. And one day she got tired of me pacing back and forth high on Coke in my apartment. 
And well, she's, she's laid out from heroin. Yeah. Right. So she's like, well, you smoke some of this, so you'll calm down. And next thing I know, I'm smoking it. And then I'm becoming a daily user. Um, had a pretty successful job in marketing and um, lost that job eventually because your drug dealer doesn't care that you're late for work and sick. (laughs) So I was late for work a lot, ended up losing that job and, um, and then never really. uh, And then I eventually got off heroin. Uh, I was on that for pretty heavily for a year. Um, IV or just smoking? Just smoking. I didn't switch to the needle until a couple of years later when I just started doing meth, I was became a uh, heroin kind of was like, I was really sick, quit cold Turkey, didn't have a program or anything. It was just like, I'm just going to stop. I don't want to. And then me being sick for a week, I was like, I don't want to ever feel like that again. I'm never touching that stuff again. And that was enough for me. Um, Describe that. You know, we talk a lot about dope sick from, from opioids. Describe the feeling. It's like the worst flu combined with depression and anger at the same time. It was like all my emotions were a mess. Um, You know, like being angry and then not knowing like what to do. And that's actually kind of like where I started drinking a lot because I was like, I'd rather be passed out drunk than wide awake sick, which it worked out kind of as asleep a lot because I was drinking so heavily, but I was also in the bathroom a lot, vomiting, diarrhea, right. all those common sicknesses, like the runny noses, the itching all over, just and knowing exactly what it is to get that what I need to do to get well. And just to I, gut it out. Yeah. Right? Or to not feel like that, all I had to do was make a phone call. Right. And, which, which is why so many people keep doing it, right? Yeah. Because it's like you get like that. And then you're just like, this is what will make me feel better. I know that I can make a phone call and feel better and not be sick like this within minutes. So um, for some reason, I made it through that. And then I moved in with my family in Price, Utah, um, became a bartender of all things. <laughs> yeah, well, perfect so, job. Yeah, perfect job. No for, drugs, no. no so know. I was drinking pretty much nonstop then um, from... You know, I had my little Coke behind the bar and it was more than Coke. <laughs> it was rum and Coke yeah, like sure. all day long. And then um, and then uh, I kind of quit that cold turkey, too. Uh, one day I remember I sat there and I worked a day shift at the bar. So I really didn't have anything to eat before I got there. And I got to um, and my friends wanted to go out afterwards. And I lived out in the middle of nowhere. So we're like, let's go have a fire and drink some beer. And I was like, okay. And then I realized I drank a 30 pack of beer and I wasn't drunk. I mean, and I was like, I should feel a lot more drunk than how I feel right now. And so I was just like, I got to cut back. And it was like, just not even a real conscious effort. And like someone asked me for a beer like a year later. And I was like, I don't even drink anymore. Wow. I knew- I'm a recovering alcoholic, so I cannot relate to that. <laughs> I, I, it took me a lot more than saying I'm not going to drink anymore. Yeah, and it's kind of been like that. Um, and then what happened after that is I moved back to Salt Lake, and um, uh, I was looking for a room to rent, and I actually moved in with a uh, someone that used to be an escort, it, her niece was one of my good friends and actually my was my secretary at one of my jobs. And I started living with her and she's, like I said, a retired escort and a cocaine addict. 
Um, so I started doing cocaine again. And then I ran into one of her friends. Um, and her friend was an active escort and a daily meth user. And I was helping her, like, you know, put bookshelves together, um, just doing odds and ends with other of the girls. And um, one time the girl was giving me meth and I was like, oh, you know, having fun with it, you know, not really overwhelming. And then um, I, she started saying, hey, can you take my phone calls for me? And I was like, sure. And then I thought it was fun, you know, like I'm sitting here on the phone talking to these guys pretending to be some escort high on meth. And then like, um, and then that kind of formed into my street career because that that fun meth turned into not so fun meth. Right. Shortly thereafter, uh, I've been um, in some interesting situations. I've been kidnapped a couple of times. But, um, kidnapped by? Um one was someone that wanted my, I was living in a house and they just wanted to live where I, they wanted my bedroom. Okay. So. And kidnapping uh, you will. Well, cause they, it was like, and the girl that owned the house was just starting to sell drugs. Um, and she was doing it to show like, I'll do this to anybody. Like it was kind of like I was made an example. Like I was zip tied in a room, bloodied. And uh, people would walk in to buy drugs and they see that's what happens when you don't do what you're supposed to. Jeez. Um, that was for two days. Um, did, did anything click in your head that maybe you're not living the best lifestyle at that point? Um, you would think. Yeah. Instead, I, one <laughs> I, instead, I just went deeper. I actually, that was like my last stable place to live while using. Wow. Um, I went from then into this, like, uh, began my homelessness. Uh, I started, you know, going the streets and falling back onto this where I used to set up dates for this girl. Um, I started running into girls that were in that industry. And I was like, well, I know how to answer the phones. And I know where to put your ads that you're not using them. Would you like me to do this for you? And you'll make more money. And so I started getting involved with that. And then and then they started giving me a little bit of money from the extra money that they were making because these girls were making very much. I mean, girls that were walking the street were, you know, seeing guys for $40, $60, and I was getting them $200 for the same type of work. So you were using your marketing background experience yeah. in the escort industry. Yeah. And uh, so I was doing that, and I uh, that's how I survived for 10 years in and out of the hotel rooms. 10 years? Close to it. Yeah. And then what was the point where you said, it's time for a change? Well, um, during that time, I got arrested um, numerous times. I was shoplifting to support my habit also and, um, you know, selling drugs to support my ha uh, my habit. And I caught a distribution charge um, selling to an undercover officer. Um, and Why'd I, you do that? <laughs> I even told them as I go into jail, I'm like, I'm not a drug dealer. I'm just trying to support my habit. <laughs> And, and, and he was understanding and said, go away, guy. Yeah, and there, the, the, the cops that caught, that were involved were pretty uh, good. Like Good how? Like, I had pinched the sack. Like, the sack was light, and they recognized it just from their eyeballs. Like, a normal person wouldn't recognize that a half a gram is missing out of a bag. And they were like, this bag looks light. And they, well, they didn't have a scale or anything like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I pinched them. 
And they're, and they're like, well, we'll give you a little bit of less money. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then I got, was in handcuffs five minutes later. Um, and then, so I got that rested, you know, went and play, plea bargained out. And part of my, I was on probation, um, never reported to probation, uh, was on the run. And then I got arrested um, in a car on uh, April 28th, which was, I'd been up all night the night before, walking all around the valley. Um, and my one of my friends that I met said, oh, I'll give you a ride. And I was going to ride to meet somebody, but we got pulled over. And I had felony warrants, went to jail. And like, I looked at the calendar and I realized that my son's 18th birthday was two days prior. And the last time I'd ever spent really any time with him, he was nine years old. Whoa. Jeez. So um, that must have been a slap in the face. Yeah. So I was like, I'm not going to take this chance to miss his adulthood like I missed out on his entire childhood. Um, so I luckily it was during COVID in the jail, had a lot of free phone calls that got were given us. Sure. You know, so I reached out to a, a friend of mine whose number I somehow managed to get because it wasn't someone that was in communication with me because she had gotten clean and, you know, she tried to keep those away. Um, and luckily she gave me a place to stay when I got out of jail, her and her husband and supported me, uh, until I got into treatment. Uh, so I got into treatment lasted, um, almost, I was two weeks shy of completing inpatient treatment before, at first step at first step. And I ran, got why, up. Why'd you, I'm always curious why people you're two weeks away and you run, <laughs> why'd you run? Uh, it was all my ego. Like the, I asked for, I've been sleeping on the top bunk and I wanted a bottom bunk. <laughs> and she was like, uh, uh, well, we got to save that bottom bunk for someone that medically needs it. And I was sure. like, I'm like, screw you. I deserve this bottom bunk. I'm out of here. And it's funny. My roommate offered to pay me a hundred dollars to stay. And I was like, no, I'm out of here. So if, if you're out there and you don't understand treatment centers, places like First Step or Odyssey House or House of Hope, People, yeah, they're obviously not locked down facilities, so you can leave when you want. Yeah. And and the reasons people leave are so varied, but you know, top bunk, bottom bunk is is to an outsider that sounds pretty flimsy for leaving the program. Yeah, it's funny. The house manager at the time, which was who I was having the argument with, um, I saw her at a meeting that same day or the next day. And she's like, because we had this big argument, she asked me if she wanted, if I wanted to leave. And I was like, no, that was work. This is different. And now we're actually friends. So she actually works for Odyssey also. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So, so you've been clean ever since then? Or? I, yeah, I didn't. I, when I left, I went into a girl that was working in the sex industries, a hotel room, um, who I was really close with. And she said, well, I'll try not to use in front of you. But that's how I kind of got involved in the service work. Um, a couple of my friends were volunteering a lot and were volunteering on a daily basis. So I, she said, she, I asked her if you wanted to, if I could come help her volunteer. So I started doing that every day until I found a sober living to move into. So I was not moved in, but eventually I probably would have ended up using if I would have stayed in that girl's hotel room much longer. Right. And, and and you were doing service work for Soap to Hope? Not at that time. It was okay. an organization called Addict to Advocate. Um, okay. They just went and handed out food 
Right. Um, did laundry for the the unsheltered people and like once a week they right. grab all their clothes. Um, that's where I started with. Uh, and but the funny thing is, it's like when bef- I was going to a, a meeting every day when a I twelve got, step meeting when I got out of jail. Okay. And it was during COVID, so there wasn't very many in person meetings. So I found this one meeting at Liberty Park, and I was going there every day. And January was there, um, and she said when you know I, I she was moving from one location her storage for all of the soap to hope supplies to her home so i that's how i kind of met january and i volunteered to help her with that for people who are this sort of sort of inside talk here january riggins is uh the, what the ceo or whatever a founder a founder of a group called soap to hope uh, who basically, you want to describe what they do? So Soap to Hope is um, an anti-human trafficking organization. Uh, they do street level outreach um, nightly uh, at the nighttime. They're the only night re- outreach program. Um, they connect people with resources, provide hygiene packs to people in, in highly sex traffic areas in Salt Lake Valley, um, provide harm reduction supplies like syringe exchange, naloxone, um, those types of things, condoms, safe sex kits um, for people that we meet on a, I meet on a nightly basis and then those guys see on a daily basis. And and, and people uh, people watch this or listen to this around the country and around the world. And you might be thinking, Salt Lake City doesn't have places where escorts and prostitutes hang out. Uh, and it's basically, well, I guess they're everywhere, but it's, but the, Area that you guys focus on is on North Temple, right? Well, uh, North Temple—that's a one or section, State and then Street. we do the State Street um, around the ballpark area. Yeah, uh, and and it's basically around uh, motels that are cheap to stay in. Uh, yeah, I don't even know how cheap they are. They just they take cash. I think that's you know, yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> and IDs aren't necessarily yeah. required. Okay, let's let's go to. Uh, let me see. We've done the good, the bad. No, we haven't done the good. Okay, you are now working with 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 Odyssey House, and and, and describe what you're. It's a it's not it's a program that doesn't get a lot of publicity from Odyssey House. And I, I think one of the reasons why is that we're not really a substance use department. Um, we don't really focus on that, even though most of our clients do suffer from substance use disorder. And it's called the FACT team or Forensic Assertive Community Treatment. So all of our clients suffer from severe mental health issues like bipolar or schizophrenia and are involved in the criminal justice system somehow. And the services you provide are not housing, right? No, we do help them with housing. Um, That's one of the reasons why they brought me on is I used to work at the homeless shelter for First Step. Okay. Providing, you know, encouraging people to go to treatment. Um, So I actually go to a homeless triage meeting every week and advocate for some of our clients that are homeless um, to get them off the street or out of the shelters if that's where they are. Um, but that's, that's sort of to keep people on track, right? Yeah. So we want to make sure that they're in the community that because it's for people that we think can be treated out in an outpatient in an outpatient environment. So they'll uh, we get them to their court dates. Um, we help them like at the boarding homes, getting them to doctor's appointments, um, providing, uh, that's what the case management does. And then we also have a prescriber on hand that prescribes all their psych meds 
Um, we also have a counselor that can talk to them, you know, whenever they need to. And we're a 24 hour uh, program. So how many people do you serve? Right now, I believe it's around 80. Wow. 80 clients. Um, and then our team is pretty small. I think we have eight people on our team. Um, and it's like I said, like we, we do weekly, like I run a substance use disorder, me and one other person run a substance use disorder class every week. And then they have a process group once a week. And then I, we try to meet with each one of our clients, the case managers, there's uh, four of us. We try to meet with each client at least once a week. And success, failure, what? Uh... All the here in between. I mean, like we have, we like to think that we're, we're so close with our clients that when they start declining, we can kind of try to um, get ahead of it so we can see, oh, like this is something that's going on. Let's right. try to get your meds changed or let's what's going on in your life that's causing this to change. And we've built up a lot of trust with our clients sure. so that they're willing because I tell all my clients when I meet with them and they're my first meeting, I'm like, if you use, let me know ahead of time so I can try to keep you out of jail. Like I can, I don't like jail. Jail's not fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, and especially for somebody with a severe mental illness. Yeah. It's even worse. Yeah. It's like, you know, like they don't react the same. Um, so, and then, so a lot of our clients are in the mental health court, which is similar to drug court, which a lot of people are familiar with. But now without a pro and it, this it, really, the program doesn't get a lot of publicity, but without a program like this, where would, what would your clients be doing? Probably running amok and homeless. Um, most of our clients um, have are so severe that a lot of their family members can't handle them because their voices get too overwhelmed with them or their actions are so extreme that their family is like, I can't handle them. So they're usually um, either like on the streets, like most of these people aren't capable of holding down a regular nine to five job. We have a few that have, and that's our goal is to get them to where they want to be, whether it be on social security or stable enough to where they can maintain employment and, and support themselves. The thing that's scary about people like your clients is, uh, and you, you know, you read about the horrible outcomes sometimes when they have a run in with the law because they'll be combative, they'll fight. And, and sometimes it ends up in a fatal shooting. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately we haven't had any, we've had our, a lot of like instances where like we'll get them cause we'll get referrals um, from like the court system. Um, cause they've done something like that. Not necessarily they'll be fighting the police or they'll like try to take the weapon from the police or they'll just get in a, uh, you know, a physical altercation with the police when they're confronted with anything. And they're usually coming to them in an extreme um, psychosis usually. The cops aren't usually called when they're being normal. The cops are being called when they're <laughs> right. acting um, in a psychotic manner. And put yourself in the place of the cop. Okay, you come across somebody like this. You've, I mean, I mean, how do you, how how is a police officer supposed to figure out what's going on with this individual? Um, well, you can tell when like the, some of their actions that they have. Um, aren't what you would see as normal. Like they're usually not doing something like that a normal, say, criminal is going to do. A normal criminal. <laughs> well, like, you know, like they're like, you know, like like I was bringing up, like they're not like naked running down the street. That's obviously somebody that's mentally ill. 
like a normal or in a psychotic state, either they could have been a high on drugs or whatever. So they kind of like have to take it as this person's not acting as a, as a normal person would or a sane person would. They're usually in a very psychotic state at that time. And whether it be from drug use or just the voices becoming too overwhelming for them or the psychosis becoming too overwhelming for them. So one of the keys for your clients is to make sure they stay on their meds. Yes, the, we try to, that's one of the requirements um, to be in our program. It's a volunteer program. So we ask them if they want to join our program, but we do require them to take meds. Uh, a lot of our clients are in long acting injectables, so they don't have to, we don't have to worry about them taking them once a day. You know, we can give them a shot that lasts a month, two months, up really? to six months. So for, with an antipsychotic. So like that, once we get them on there, they're usually controllable. Like to where we, they're in somewhat control of their, of their own mind. Like sometimes they'll, and then and we, like I said, we built up levels of trust so that they, when they are having voices, they can talk to us about it. And then we can see what we can do to help if we need to change the medication or, or if it's something that's going on, a stressor in their life that's causing that to happen. Is it a free service or? Yeah. In fact, it's um, a Medicaid program, but we do have some county funding. We'll get them on Medicaid usually within shortly. Sure. But um, it's just like, that's where Odyssey comes into play because like they have that county funding to help with that stuff. Um, so we get some referrals from the inpatient mental health facility that, that Odyssey has. Um, and then we get some from other areas. We've been getting a lot from the shelters lately. What, uh, how, how does somebody, like if I know somebody who I think would qualify for the program, what do you, what do you do? They have to have, uh, they would have to have speak to a clinician and have a licensed clinician write a referral to our organization. Any clinician? A licensed clinician, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and so when they're referred to Odyssey, does it go through their admissions department or directly to you guys? It goes through to us directly because it's an outpatient facility and they're not going through the inpatient process. So they don't need to go through Odyssey admissions. So like our referrals will come directly from like the court system, the shelters, and they'll email our team and then we'll screen them talk to them for a little, little bit and determine if they, and let them decide. We'll determine if they meet the criteria. Um, you know, sorry to say that some people that get aren't, doesn't have severe mental health enough to to come to our organization. And some, a lot of the problems is they don't want to be medicated. So like we can't force them to take their medication, so. It's ironic, uh, we're just about out of time, but the people, almost everybody I know who works in the treatment industry in, in one aspect or another had the kind of similar background you did or I did. Why does that, I mean, you have a marketing background so you could be doing something else. Why do you choose to do this? Well, my the, the man who raised me, my, my biological father passed away when I was seven months old. My mom remarried when I was uh, two. And so they were married up until both their passings. Um, uh, my father, uh, was, uh, had paranoid schizophrenic, um, had suffered from DID um, disorder. And um, I was raised with that. So like my, there'd be days that my dad would do certain things and he wouldn't remember doing them because he was in a different mind state at that time and wouldn't have any recollection. And they didn't get his medication under control until I was entering high school. Wow. So um, being around that as I've learned how to deal with that and and, kind of take a step back that what these people are saying things to me that may necessarily be mean or they're not saying it because they have any personal problems with me. 
they're saying it because of their mental illness. And just like when I was using certain people, the average person wasn't, you know, committing these crimes because they are a truly mean person. They're doing it to support their addiction. Um, so, and I like to think that if they were in a sober state that they wouldn't, you know, steal right. my things or, or punch that person or whatever. So, so you're giving, I mean, obviously there's a reward for you and it helps you with your sobriety. Yeah. I mean, that and my service work, like going out with Soap to Hope every week to do night outreach in the areas that I used at, um, those are the types of things of being of services. It's definitely hard. It's a very difficult thing to do to feel pity upon yourself or get into yourself when you're being of service to others. We've mentioned a lot of, uh, a couple of programs, Soap to Hope. If you want to Google it, it's the word soap, then the number two, hope. UT.com. Yeah. And, and you'll find it. And if if you want more information about a program uh, like Christian works in, uh, just go to odysseyhouse.org on our website and look under mental illness. They're nodding yes, our producers. Yeah, so. It's the fact team on that section. The fact team. Thank you for all you do. No, thank you for having me on. Yeah, th- thanks for coming by. And thank you, Rachel, wherever you are. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for watching or listening to another edition of Odyssey House Journals.